thank you for coming to the Center for American Progress and braving the stormy weather outside for what will be a, a very interesting panel. My name is Brian Katulis. I'm a senior fellow here at the uh, Center for American Progress and an advisor to our Middle East Progress uh, program. For the past month or so, the Center has organized a series of events examining key aspects of uh, uh, U.S. policy towards Iraq. The aim of this series has been to put uh, into the spotlight some key components of our Iraq policy as the war enters its sixth year. Last month, we held a panel with military experts uh, debating the impact of the surge. We also hosted a discussion on the financial impact of the war. Earlier this month, we had a, uh, some sobering perspectives from two journalists, Nir Rosen and CNN's Michael Ware, um, on the situation on the ground in Iraq. And later this month, uh, early next month, we'll have a series of remarks from Senator Chuck Hagel, uh, Congressman John Murtha, and a number of others. Uh, you can look at our website to see the schedule for, that, for, for, for those events. Today's topic is one that I think deserves a, a greater attention here in Washington, the diplomatic and political tools needed to achieve progress in Iraq. Um, the diplomatic component is something that a lot of people talk about when they discuss Iraq. Our commanders on the ground have highlighted that Iraq needs a political solution. Uh, many leaders in Congress, uh, including the, the, the three presidential candidates, have all talked about the need for power sharing, that this is key and integral to uh, uh, stabilizing the situation in Iraq. And the center has addressed uh, this component in, in all of its policy reports uh, on Iraq, including strategic redeployment and strategic reset, and importantly, our work at the uh, Middle East Progress Project, where we've had a series of um, newsletters and editions focusing on the diplomatic tools that, that are needed to, uh, um, to advance uh, progress inside of Iraq. Um, I want to highlight a little bit about the Middle East progress because this is one uh, component that we're, we're very proud of. Uh, it consists of a, a, a three-time-a-week bulletin on key issues in the Middle East called the Middle East Bulletin, and we can sign you up for that if you're interested. And copies, and copies are available in the back. Um, in addition to the Middle East Bulletin, we have a number of projects, including um, um, a project with the Clinton Global Initiative promoting private and public partnerships on advancing uh, um, uh, progress uh, on the Arab-Israeli front. And we've worked with uh, uh, the Middle East Investment Initiative, partnering with uh, OPEC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Um, this is a key component of our work here at the center, and it overlaps uh, and, and is a key component of how we uh, look at Iraq and approach Iraq. And I'm going to turn the, uh, the discussion over to, to my colleague Mara Rudman to introduce our panelists and uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, our focus for today. Thanks very much, Brian. And uh, as Brian mentioned, what we want to focus on today, as the title indicates, is examining the diplomatic and political tools to achieve progress and stability in Iraq. And we're fortunate in doing so to have um, two experts here who have a great deal of practical experience. Um, we wanted very much to have three experts. Carlos Pasquale at the last minute was unable to join us um, because of a, a family situation that was just unanticipated, and he very much regrets not being able to be here. We will do our best as a panel panel to make up for his um, for his absence and, and rely on some of his past writings and statements to do that, and hope that your questions as well will help us to bring out um, some of, of what he's done and what he's said on the subject. But I am pleased to be able to introduce to you both Chris Kojum and Nabil um, Alptakridi. Uh, uh, I'll go first with Chris, who I had the privilege of working with for some years um, when he was the Deputy Staff Director at the, the Foreign Affairs Committee, where we both served under Chairman Lee Hamilton, Chairman and then Ranking Member Lee Hamilton. Um, Chris also was the Deputy uh, Staff Director at the 9-11 Commission, and he also served as the Senior Advisor of the Iraq Study Group. Um, that was led by, of course, Lee Hamilton and, uh, and James Baker. And he is now the Professor of Practice of International Affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. And we also have Nabil Al-Takridi, um, who is a specialist on population displacement in Iraq, um, looking particularly at demographic changes occurring in Iraq since 2003. He was a member of the team that operated the Catholic Relief Services 
um, the uh, a Catholic, Catholic Relief Services Humanitarian Assistance Project in Iraq in the early 1990s. He later served uh, with Medicine Sans Frontier as a relief worker in Somalia, Iran, Albania, Turkey, and Jordan. Um, and he served as a field administrator and election monitor in various programs in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and Africa. And he has written on social and political forces in Iraq. Um, so as you can see, we, we have a wealth of practical experience here at the table on the topic at hand. We've asked Chris to start off with, um, ex with talking to us about the regional situation broadly and, and looking at updating us particularly on how the Iraq study group uh, focused on some of the questions um, with respect to a regional perspective on Iraq. Um, given that that came out in December of 2006, uh, it may seem for some of us more recent than that and for some, some of us quite a long time ago. But we asked Chris, Chris to update us on that. And then we'll ask Nabil to, to turn to giving us um, a look at the internal forces within Iraq. And then we'll, uh, we'll turn to questions here within the panel and then open it up to the audience. So Chris, why don't you start? Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the introduction, uh, Mara. Thank you, Brian. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll keep my remarks fairly brief so that we can get to the dialogue. I, I want to start out by talking a little bit about Iraq and then talk about um, the Iraq Study Group report and, and diplomacy, as Mara indicated, and then just close by saying a few words about um, the United States and problems in our body politic that make it a little hard to get to this, to uh, what all of us at the table today see as a central question that keeps getting sidelined um, a little bit. Um, let, let me start with Iraq. And despite everything that has occurred there, we still have a very strong sense of Iraqi national identity. And that's clear among the Shia and among the Sunni. And you even find some of it among the Kurds. I wouldn't overemphasize that. but. Uh, at least the leadership, see the importance of um, a unified Iraq. Uh, the paradox, of course, is that there are great differences in the communities about what that Iraq should look like. And in many ways, as time goes on, the problem is getting uh, harder. It's getting worse, um, not easier. And that's of, because of fragmentation in the communities. Uh, the Shia fragmentation is, is most visible now, um, given the fighting in Basra and the differences between, um, the way I put it, between the Badrs and the Sadrs, um, between the Badr organization and, and the Sadrist tendency. Um, these differences predate um, the U.S. presence. They will be there long after the U.S. presence, um, but at the meantime, they're certainly uh, getting exacerbated and worsened because of uh, the present violence. You have a similar fragmentation in the Sunni community between those who are in the parliament um, and who claim to speak for the Sunni community, and yet you have 91,000 concerned local citizens and uh, um, local leadership, um, tribal-based leadership that sees itself uh, as representing the community. And in the north, uh, between Talibani and Barzani, the differences are patched up and things are uh, surely better than they were um, a decade ago, but I would never overemphasize the, the unity uh, in the north. Well, what does this fragmentation mean? Why am I bringing this up? The point is that because of the fragmentation both between the communities and within the communities, um, this makes the international climate so very important. All the parties, when it is in their interest, work with outside parties on behalf of their particularist interests. And let me cite uh, just a study from, or excuse me, a poll from September of this uh, past year, a joint um, BBC, ABC, uh, NHK survey. And the particular question I want to highlight is, do you think that the following countries are or are not actively engaged in encouraging sectarian violence in Iraq? 
are Syria, 66%, Iran, 79%, Saudi Arabia, 65%. Now, the communities vary, of course, uh, in terms of how they see um, uh, who's being a, a, a nasty actor in I Iraq's internal politics, with uh, the Sunnis, of course, seeing Iran playing um, a bad hand, and the Shia seeing um, the same from Saudi Arabia and Syria. Uh, the point here is that Iraqis see the, um, uh, the critical importance of getting a handle on the behavior of uh, the neighbors, of external actors. Now, for the United States, one thing <laughs> that we do have agreement on in our body politic is the centrality and absolute importance of political reconciliation as the uh, foundation for um, either stability and democracy in Iraq uh, or the conditions that will enable the withdrawal of U.S. forces or both of the above. So wherever you are on the American political spectrum, you understand the centrality of political reconciliation um, as, uh, as the cornerstone. The problem is you can't get political reconciliation excuse me, political reconciliation either by our actions or even by the actions of Iraqi actors. They are foremost and have to take all the hard steps, but the international community must create an environment that supports that process. That process cannot gel. It cannot be sustained in the absence of international support by the neighbors in the first instance, by the international community uh, more broadly, uh, almost as important as the neighbors themselves. Okay, this is what the Iraq study group spoke of. The Iraq study group made many recommendations. It had three primary recommendations. The first one listed in the report was the centrality of an international diplomatic initiative, which the study group believed needed to be pursued with great urgency uh, before the end of the year, that year having been um, 2006. Um, the members of the study group uh, wh whom I speak to on both sides of the aisle uh, still believe in the centrality of the diplomatic recommendation and its importance. Um, and I think here, um, speaking for myself, but reflecting some of the views of the members, we see some movement by the administration. It's um, partial, it's modest, some might say grudging. Um, suffice it to say it has not been a robust, urgent diplomatic initiative. And um, everyone in the region knows that. Everyone in the international community uh, can read that. Um, Diplomats are good at reading the priorities of the United States, um, and they, around the world, I, I don't know that they see diplomacy with respect to the uh, to Iraq as a priority. Um, just a few more things to say about diplomacy uh, in the region. Um, you have to engage with the parties that are powerful in the region and that are powerful in Iraq. That surely includes Iran. It also includes um, Syria. Uh, it also includes Saudi Arabia. We talked to Saudi Arabia. We're meeting with the Gulf Cooperation Council states today. I don't doubt for a minute what the administration says about Iraq being part of the problem. Because it's such a central part of the problem, it must be part of the solution. Iraq. Um, we can't make progress in Iraq without engaging Iran. Secretary Kissinger, during the Vietnam War, went to China. Secretary Kissinger worked with President Nixon negotiating arms control agreements with the then Soviet Union. The policy was called detente. At the same time, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China were pumping arms into Vietnam. 
Every day, arms provided to North Vietnam were killing American soldiers, sailors, and airmen. But we engaged in a dialogue with those two governments on behalf of our broader objectives um, to try and end, uh, at that time, of course, the war in Vietnam. I would submit to you if, if uh, Secretary Kissinger could do that, uh, so should the current and uh, next Secretary of State. Uh, we need to engage key players that have a say uh, in a part of the world that's very important to us. Um, it's not going to be easy, of course. Uh, I, I hold, and I know the members of the study group, hold no particular illusions about the ease of dealing with Iran. Iran, we should remember, is a country that brought down one president, President Carter, severely tar tarnished the reputation of another, President Reagan. They're not easy to deal with. Yet, we do share interests. It's not comfortable to admit that, but we do. We share an interest in stability in Iraq. We share an interest in ensuring that if there is a conflict, that it does not spill over the borders and draw in the neighbors. We share an interest in the return of refugees. We share an interest in economic development uh, in Iraq. We share an interest in the safe and secure flow of oil. Um, now, there are many aspects of our relationship with Iran that, of course, are difficult, where we don't share interests. But this is what diplomacy is all about identifying areas where we can work together and trying to find uh, some way to move forward. Um, a lot more can be said on this topic, but I, I, I think I'll just turn right now um, and, and say a few words about uh, the American body politic. Um, and I understand, I guess as an intellectual matter, why our focus is on um, the military and uh, on our forces and the use of force and what General Petraeus says. When young men and women are in harm's way, uh, naturally that's our focus. We know a lot more about our, our soldiers and our loved ones than we do about the internal politics of uh, Iraq. And we have more control, we think, certainly over the use of force than we do over internal politics. Um, in Iraq. So, so I don't fault the American public for being focused on the military question. Um, I just sure wish our leaders would focus a little uh, more broadly. That includes the candidates in the debate. Our debate is fairly sterile here. It's about should we stay or should we go? and doesn't get much beyond that. Um, but also the President of the United States. Under the Constitution, the power to negotiate, the conduct of American diplomacy rests with him. The President and the Congress have shared powers in foreign policy, but the conduct of diplomacy is in the hands of the President. He surely should be giving it greater emphasis uh, than he has. We need a balance. We need to use American forces but we also need to engage the use of force and American power on behalf of diplomacy, on behalf of our goals. And in the absence of a strong diplomatic push, um, I just don't see how we're uh, going to achieve our goals in Iraq. And I'll stop right there. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chris. I appreciate that. And Nabil, um, maybe we can now turn internally um, within Iraq, and you can explain to us a little bit more of the dynamics there before we go to questions. Uh, thank you. First, uh, is there something to turn on here? Yeah, I think I'll, if you just speak into it, it should work. Okay. I'd also like to thank you for this invitation. It's, uh, it's an honor to be able to speak here today. Uh, first of all, I should just, a uh, couple of disclaimers. Um, while I am an Iraqi American, I do not pretend to speak on behalf of any Iraqi even though at times in my talk I might uh, refer to what I think an Iraqi viewpoint might be. Uh, also, I should say that my views do not represent the U.S. Institute of Peace in any way. Even though I'm a fellow there, these are just my views. And for that matter, my views don't reflect those of the Pentagon, Lockheed Martin, BAE, the Bush administration, or Pizza Hut. Um, 
this reflecting yesterday's article in the New York Times. But, um, all right, over the course of the last five years, it seems like the Iraqi domestic political scene has evolved through certain stages. What you might call Ba'athist unilateralism leading up to 2003, then a period, a very short period as it turns out, of, an, of American unilateralism under the early CPA. Uh, and then there's sort of the growth of the insurgency where there's a nationalist Iraqi insurgency against the American occupation. That runs from maybe late 2003 up until 2006. Then there's an intersectarian war, 2006 to 2008. And what we're seems, what we seem to have begun is now the intra-sectarian war. And that seems to be the next stage of this conflict. Now, by the way, these, these are all happening at the same time. I don't mean like one ends and another one begins, but you know, the predominance of these types of conflicts over time. So now we've entered into an intra-sectarian conflict, and that appears to be the next phase, where you're going to see Shi'i Shi violence and Sunni-Sunni violence. And as one commentator um, mentioned recently, this might actually be a good thing for Iraqi, for the Iraqi nationalist thread within Iraqi politics. Um, as Chris just mentioned, the, the, it seems like Iraqi nationalism is strong, it's still strong, and it may even be getting stronger uh, out of the shell of the last couple of years of intersectarian conflict. Uh, at least I'd like to think so, and so would, so would many others. Um, all right, so let's go through some of the recent developments, just you know, sort of a news item sense. Uh, the security situation has been sliding slowly since January, um, a slow, steady, de steady decline into pr progressively more violence. There were several car bombings last week in Baghdad. The suicide bombings attributed to Al-Qaeda continue apace. There were mass graves found in the last week in both Mahmoudiyah and Diwaniyah. At the same time, there's some positive signs. Uh, negotiations between tribal sheikhs and Mahmoudiyah appear to be opening up. Um, also, the stresses appear to be building, um, not so much between Asahwa and Al-Qaeda, which was what had been happening. Now it almost seems like something else is evolving, and no one's quite sure what yet. I mean, it hasn't really evolved yet. It's sort of in transition. Um, whereby this, this Sahwa group, you know, these are the concerned local citizens, the sons of Iraq, they go under many names uh, because they're still evolving. It's kind of, um, uh, it's, it's something of a poison pill for the long-term future of Iraqi centralist politics, at least I would argue that. In other words, created whole cloth out of nothing, out of a, out of a Sunni area that was somehow centralist and nationalist, they've created a new Sunni regionalist identity. Uh, that's something that U.S. policy has intentionally done, and I think for very good reason. I mean, there's very good policy reasons why that course was chosen, and some of it uh, took on its own momentum and isn't really driven by U.S. Uh, policy, but there it is. But what's happening now is, is, is really unclear. There's no significant integration into regular Iraqi military and police, or not enough in any case. They're supposed to take 20,000 out of the 90,000, and that process hasn't really gotten going to any appreciable level. There are talk, there is talk, there is gossip that the U.S. may soon cease the $300 plus monthly payments, or at least the rumors are floating around that they may stop. And once they do, these um, Sahwa militia elements will turn against the U.S. at the turn of a, you know, at the drop of a hat, turn of a dime, I would argue. And that may already be happening whereby uh, Sahwa and Al-Qaeda groups are sometimes cooperating uh, both for and against U.S. Uh, local interests. Uh, it's, it's a very confusing situation, and it's not getting clearer. If anything, it's getting more confusing. Then turning to the, the, the Sadr and Maliki uh, split, whereby I, I would add that not only do the U.S. and Iran share interests in Iraq, I would argue they share proxies in Iraq, which is sometimes pointed out in the, in the op-ed pages, but perhaps not enough, because not enough people are aware that basically the U.S. and Iran are back in the same horse, namely uh, the, the, those who are part of the coalition with uh, Prime Minister al-Maliki. Um, but this is starting to uh, slide into something else, uh, which started, what was it, two, three weeks back with the, with the Basra conflict. But recently, just on Saturday, Muqtada al-Sadr threatened an open war of liberation until the departure of U.S. forces and ultimate victory. Well, okay, maybe this time it really will happen. It has, there have been flare-ups before, certainly, 
it's hard to know. It hasn't started yet. Uh, the report I read at the time over the weekend said and it might even start tomorrow, which I guess would be yesterday. Um, so I don't suppose it has happened, but it certainly could happen. And they're certainly on the verge of a lot more conflict. And conflict is, in fact, happening. So, for example, it, it came out this morning that 23 people were killed in Sadr City yesterday by U.S. military, by the U.S. military. Uh, and the U.S. military is building a wall in southern Sadr City to try and prevent rocket attacks on the Green Zone. Um, and it's not at all clear that this is going to work. What is clear is that it is building stresses between those who support Muqtada Sadr and the U.S. But it's, even that is not so simple because the U.S. rhetoric about Muqtada Sadr has been evolving as well, whereby now they take a much softer line than they had as recently as a few months back. So again, that's also a bit confused. And here, the U.S. and Iran are on the same side. They're playing an intricate ballet of public diplomacy, double crosses and intrigue all around, and no one, I'm not even sure the actors in question know what's going on there um, within their respective bureaucracies. The Iraqi military isn't quite measuring up to the hopes uh, laid for it. It remains completely dependent on U.S. military support, either air support or ground support. Uh, 1,300 Sadrists were either fired or basically laid off after the most recent conflicts. Um, 10,000 tribal militia, they called them tribal militia, were accepted into the military something like two, three weeks ago. Uh, but they were said to be ISKI elements, in other words, um, uh, better core friendly groups at least and the Sahwa is still not being accepted. All right, next set of developments. Provincial elections are due for October of 2008 of this year. Um, and last, last Friday, at uh, prayers in Karbala, various religious figures called for the provincial council elections to be held on time. So there is stress, there is pressure to actually do these elections on time. And one can argue that that is building. Reconciliation appears to be showing no progress, and as one commentator pointed out, perhaps the goal shouldn't be reconciliation anyway. Perhaps it should just be accommodation. That would be much more understated and more likely to succeed. Um, but accommodation probably requires a U.S. withdrawal. I mean, that's one of the things that I'd like to argue, is that in a way it can't happen unless the U.S. withdraws, because the U.S. is an external irritant that gets between parties while driving parties onto various positions. And it's kind of like every, well, those who the US at times is with, it's almost like this big dumb hammer that you can, you can, you can um, manipulate to use against your enemy within an Iraqi domestic political sphere. It's almost like the US is the force multiplier for various militia elements within domestic Iraqi politics which is an argument for withdrawal right there. Uh, we're not a positive figure, we're, we're, we're an exaggerating figure. We're, exas uh, we're, we're causing a lot of conflict. The amnesty law is starting to be implemented, but the numbers are very unclear. It's a very opaque situation. One, one source says that 33,321 have been processed. Other sources say almost none have been processed. Nobody's actually been released. There are allegations of Shi'i favoritism in the prisoner releases. Many releases appear to be held up due to US, uh, U.S. holds. In other words, the military says, no, 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 not that guy. We're not letting him out, even though the Iraqi government says, yeah, that guy can be uh, freed. So there's a disagreement there. And that also is an example of how sovereignty is not yet fully restored, which everyone knows. Um, but it's another example of it. Um, the Kirkuk referendum continues to be kicked down the road, and that's probably a good thing, a sign of Iraqi um, political or tactical maturity of, of some sort. And then here's a, a major issue which doesn't get still enough coverage, although it does get some coverage, and that is that population displacement is still an absolutely massive, not only humanitarian, but politically sensitive issue within the Iraqi political sphere. In recent months, the, the, the recorded numbers at IOM, the Institute for, uh, no, sorry, the International, what is it? Organization of International Migration, yeah, IO. IOM, OIM, anyway, whatever. Um, their numbers have gone up from 2 million to 2.77 million in only 
four months. But as um, one of their officials pointed out a week ago, a lot of that is actually just increased registration. It's not like a lot more domestic displacement is still happening. Most of it's already taken place. And there's like a two-month lag from actual displacement to the numbers showing up on IOM's, uh, on IOM's databases because people have to get registered, then it has to be reported, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even though the 2 to 2.77 million increase from December to April sounds like a lot, it's a little bit deceptive. It's more accurate to say that's August to December's um, increase. Maybe that's a bit too wonkish. <laughs> a lot of, there, there's been talk about returnees. Most of the returnees end up in secondary displacement, and that's not always something that reduces conflict. It often leads to another round of conflict. They say that Baghdad is now almost completely homogenized neighborhood by neighborhood, and it may even be as much as 75% Shi'i when it used to be 50-50 or 55-45. Um, but that's not, there's no good sources on Baghdad ethnic cleansing that I'm aware of. Uh, they're still seeing some displacement from Diyala, Nineveh, and Tamim, or Kirkuk, and the minorities are in a desperate situation, especially what I sometimes refer to as the micro-minorities, your Mendeins, your Assyrian Christians, your Yazidis. They're in a desperate, desperate situation. They're not getting any better. All right, uh, but some things in the U.S. Re relating to Iraq. Now, this is changing the topic a little bit, but some U.S., Pundits have been advocating for strategic patience, but without explaining what the patience is leading to. Like, where is this going? Just stick around, it'll somehow get better, seems to be the argument. And, and it's not an argument, but it's still an argument that seems to be carrying weight within this uh, hallway of mirrors we call Washington. Um, also, last week, this is a development I want to mention, that some U.S. congressmen congresspersons were calling for Iraq to effectively pay for its own occupation, where they said that the U.S. government should be receiving a form of um, reimbursement for expenses made, this is actually from Wolf Blitzer Sunday a week ago, addressed to an Iraqi foreign the Iraqi foreign minister, that Iraq should pay reimbursement for reconstruction costs expended in Iraq. And I, I think Okay, maybe this is my personal opinion, but I think the Iraqi point of view on that one might be um, there was an invasion of Kuwait in 1990. Uh, as far as I know, the Iraqi government is still paying compensation to Kuwait for that invasion of 1990, where one country invaded another country. And this is under international law. Well, in 2003, one could argue that Kuwait invaded Iraq. At least that's where the invasion happened. And there's never been any compensation raised for that invasion and the billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives since then. So let me just say, that might play within U.S. domestic circles. It might play very well in Peoria, but it won't play in El Peoria. There's no way that's going to fly for Iraqi domestic public opinion. No way whatsoever. Uh, finally, I'll, I'll, I'll address the, the partition argument. There are some in, the, in, in Washington who, who do believe that Iraq should be partitioned in one sense, soft, hard, mushy, what have you, uh, basically so that as, as a way to get us out of Iraq. And this is the dissent, this is an argument that's actually a bit old. You can, you can sort of point to things back in 1990 arguing that Iraq should be broken up. And in a sense, it's, it's a self-fulfilling policy. If, if commentators say that Iraq is nothing more than Shi'i, Sunni, and Kurdish, then guess what? It will eventually become nothing more than Sunni, Shi'i, and Kurdish. And in a sense, that's what we've seen over the last five years. It's evolved that way. Whereas Iraqis had been much more, and maybe we're seeing the re re revival of that, uh, secular and nationalist. Um, the historical argument is, is fallacious. It's not like there was a geographic Shi'i area south of Baghdad during the Ottoman period. The British did not create it out of three homogenous Sunni, Shi'i, and Kurdish regions to build today's Iraq. It's far more complicated historically than that. The regions are not contiguous on a sectarian basis whatsoever, and there's no protections for the micro-minorities in such a vision whatsoever. So it's, it's potentially genocidal, not so much against the big three sectarian groups, but what about the little tiny groups who don't have a say in this whatsoever? Um, Finally, on, on that argument, I think it's only something that Iraqis can say. No American, not even me, you know, half, half Iraqi, no American has any standing whatsoever to say anything about Iraq's, the, the nature of the future Iraqi state at that level. I mean, it's an Iraqi decision, full stop.
Um, and I mean that sort of ethically as much as anything else. All right, I have a lot more points that I could mention in the Q&A about, you know, where do we go from here? But I think I'll leave that potentially for the Q&A because I think I'm out of time. Thank you very much for uh, giving me a few minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nabil. Um, I, I think we'll use the, the prerogative within the panel here um, for questions initially before we open it up to, to all of you. And yeah. I'll let Brian go with the first question since I, he's talking um, at the video. I wanted to ask Chris, and, and this is something we're puzzling over at the center, particularly in, in the Middle East progress uh, component where we're about to do a paper on a, uh, a regional and strategic approach to the Middle East as opposed to getting mired in the, in the trenches of Iraq. And I'm very sympathetic to the notion of engagement with Iran, but how, how you actually do that while navigating other concerns and interests we have. Um, Iran plays a role on the Lebanese front. Um, it plays a role on the Arab-Israeli front. And it's something that I think uh, a lot of us are sympathetic to the Iraq Study Group's formulation as a strategic direction. This is the way that we need to go. But how would you imagine, assuming that this administration won't uh, take those recommendations in a, in, in a robust way, as you've, you've indicated, how would you imagine a new administration could help uh, or, or, or navigate these different uh, tracks? Because we have the, the Iraq track. We have concerns about Iran's nuclear weapon uh, program. We have concerns about its support for terrorist organizations. And we want to move forward on the Arab-Israeli peace process. So how do you do that practically uh, and manage those different, different tracks? Uh, thanks, Brian. That's an excellent question, and it uh, surely will bedevil the next president and secretary of state, and it's you know, wholly appropriate to raise it. I guess the best response I can give is that diplomacy has to be an open-ended process. You know, we don't really know all that much about Iran because we don't have a direct conversation with Iran other than a couple times between Ambassador Crocker um, and his interlocutor. Um, and Lord knows uh, the Iranian president and the Iranian leaders have some very strange ideas about the United States. A process of dialogue starting diplomacy is enormously helpful in dispelling misconceptions, um, creating the beginning of understanding, and the way I would address your question is that if we can make progress on Iraq, where I think we can, it makes other seemingly intractable problems and genuinely difficult problems a little easier to address. Um, uh, as I said earlier, one can't be uh, at all naive about that. But I do believe that if we start a process, um, we, we will start to think about our list of problems a little differently. And there is at least the possibility of making improvement. Or we can stay where we are right now and, and just have the, the terrible mess we're in um, and um, trust on the merits of that approach, um, hence my advocacy of uh, uh, dialogue. Um, let me let me put forward the next question here, and this is actually for both uh, Nabil and Chris. And I want to do my best here, which will uh, be nowhere equal to Carlos having been here, but to make up a little bit for Carlos's absence and um, and to having having read his recent testimony, which was on April third before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, as both of you may be familiar with, he advocates very strongly for a, a, a strong UN role um, in being brought into uh, um, uh, bringing the UN into a position of um, a kind of last a last ditch attempt at a peace brokering role um, among various Iraqi factions um, and what. And his theory of doing so would be that um, not not by any means that that role would be guaranteed to be successful, but that for the international community and for a strong diplomatic role, it's critical that the UN be empowered to to take on that kind of role, um, both because um, doing so um, is is the last best hope of the international community and the last best hope for bringing together various Iraqi factions. 
Um, he would also, I believe, say that to do so, um, for the UN to be credible in doing so, it must have the power to be offering if, in fact, you can bring together the factions behind a, if you can, if you can broker a, a peace agreement that you have to be able to offer a peacekeeping, peacekeeping uh, force to do so, and to do that you have to be able to offer a strong U.S. component to a peacekeeping force um, to do so, and that is part and parcel of a strong um, UN role in brokering a peace agreement going forward. And so I believe he would say that it is less than credible to, stock, to talk about a strong international diplomatic effort and a leading UN role in a strong diplomatic effort without having that as a component tool that you are providing to the UN, the ability to negotiate that. And in the same way, he would say that um, should, should such an effort not succeed, um, you need to have made the effort and you need to then have a multilateral component in terms of bringing together regional forces for whatever you're um, able to sustain on, on the margins outside Iraq to be able to contain whatever fallout comes to be. Um, so I think it would, I would be interested in, in the reactions, in the absence of having Carlos here to discuss the proposal, to, to have your reactions, because it's a fairly, I think, controversial proposal that I think has not generated enough discussion um, here in town or more broadly. So I'd like the reactions that both of you have, both what the Iraqi reaction might be and, and the international community as well. Um, I would, I would, I, that sounds like a, a very viable proposal. I would add some points about Resolution uh, 1770, which is, I think, uh, the one that dates from August of last year, August of 2007, which is what provides the legal umbrella for all UN efforts in Iraq today, UNAMI, UN Assistance Mission for Iraq. Um, some, I was speaking with a UN official about this a couple of months ago, and there are some really difficult aspects about the way 1770 was put together vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the UN effort in Iraq that I think would need to be revised for any updating of that, that resolution. And, and they're the following. First of all, it's, it's a binding resolution, which means it has an effect on international law that other Security Council resolutions may not, uh, according to this official. Um, it's renewed every year instead of every six months. Now, these are kind of more detailed issues, but the, the, the larger issues are that it's written in such a way that compromises UN neutrality and impartiality vis-a-vis -vis Iraqi politics, and it kind of binds the UN bureaucracy to the U.S. venture in Iraq. This is how he saw it as a UN official not from the U.S. And this is very problematic vis-a-vis -vis Iraqi domestic politics because of the legacy of the UN prior to 2003 as the enforcing arm of the UN sanctions um, from 1990 all the way to 2003, as well as for the legal cover that, that was provided through the mechanism of the Security Council for the 1991 war, but also again ex post facto for the 2003 invasion, um, legalizing, if you will, the US occupation in August of 2003. These are some of the reasons why the UN name in Iraq is mud, absolute mud, because it's seen as being completely hitched to U.S. interests. Now, mind you, this is not the U.S. Um, vision of what the U.N. is. I mean, we sort of see it, if we're a bit crazy, perhaps we see it as, you know, black helicopters in the night taking us out of our Pennsylvania woods or something. But, um, but you, know, more, you know, more honestly, people don't see the U.N. as being driven by the U.S. by U.S. interests here, but that's what they see in Iraq. So if there's going to be another Security Council resolution, which there should be in August of 2008, um, it really may need to look at some of these issues of impartiality, neutrality, and also one I forgot to mention is the combination of the humanitarian mission of the various UN agencies and the political mission of the UN stabilization effort. They've combined them in a way that was argued to be more efficient uh, in terms of the Iraq, um, you know, Iraqi progress, if you will. That's how it was marketed. And um, by, by combining the two, they've compromised the ability of the humanitarian branches of the UN to work effectively in Iraq. At least that's the argument that, that this official was saying. Finally, I'll, I'll simply say on that that I think the, the international community said, all right, if that's how you want 1770 to look, go ahead. Just don't look to us to help you. So if there's a different type of UN resolution, then maybe the rest of the international community might say, okay, fine, we're on board now. But that's the kinds of things that would have to change in the future. Uh, just a couple comments. Uh, I, I think Carlos um, and the argument he made is um, 
And as Mara has summarized, is, is surely moving in the right direction here. Uh, just a, a couple comments about why the UN role, uh, properly conceived, is so important. And I agree with Nabil's comments. Uh, the UN role is so important because a majority of Iraqis want coalition forces to leave now. As you stretch that out to six or 12 or 18 months, it becomes a very considerable majority. Very strong majorities see the, the uh, U.S. presence as worsening security in Iraq. And one of the drivers as to why Iraqis want us to leave is a strong belief that the United States won't leave and is manipulating um, Iraqi politics. And so I agree with Nabil that uh, accommodation would be wonderful to achieve even if reconciliation is not possible. And I do believe accommodation requires um, U.S. forces um, to be on the path uh, to withdrawal. That should be the clear direction of policy. And it also implies a strong role for the international community, for the UN, um, as conceived as an impartial uh, player. Uh, that is uh, certainly correct. As Nabil states, that's not how Iraqis see the UN now. With respect to Mara's question about the possibility of a peacekeeping role, um, the coalition element of coalition forces was 20,000 two years ago. It's now 9,000 and dropping. So the coalition as conceived by the United States is um, uh, less of one with each passing month. Should there be a peacekeeping role? I think if there is uh, a UN role properly conceived that the international community uh, certainly would be more open than it is now uh, toward um, the possibility of such participation. Everything hinges, of course, on, on um, reconciliation or accommodation on Iraq and the sense that this would be peacekeeping, not walking into um, a firefight. And also, if, as the United States um, um, puts forward uh, that Iraq is a truly sovereign um, state, with a government that can make sovereign decisions, then it, of course, too, will have a critical say in uh, the nature or if there is a follow-on force once coalition forces depart. I, I don't think it's really possible to have a, a UN peacekeeping force without uh, the uh, support um, of the Iraqi government. And I think that's an open question. Thanks very much. I think absent, unless either Nabil or Chris, either of you has a burning question to put forward. Uh, in the absence of that, then we'll, we'll turn to our audience and we would first um, open the floor to any journalists who are here, if any of you have questions. And from, from our journalists? Okay. If you'd identify yourself sure. first. And then uh, Gary Mitchell from the Mitchell Report. I want to uh, pose the question this way. Um, uh, and uh, probably to uh, to Chris, but to whoever wants to take a crack at it. Um, at uh, in January of 2009, one of three um, positions on America and Iraq will be uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. I won't try to characterize them. The McCain position is the is the easiest. It's the sort of victory choose to lose um, point of view. I think um, Obama has been a little clearer than Senator Clinton about how he would would withdraw and at what rate. And there, so my question is, so, um, which of those three or uh, perhaps a fourth, would you be most comfortable um, endorsing and, and uh, being engaged in, uh, in implementing um, 
and I'll leave it at that. Well, I'm not going to speak to the candidates' positions. I, I'll speak to the to the views of the Iraq study group, which reflect my own, which is there needs to be a clear direction set for the future course of American policy, and that is uh, the withdrawal of forces in connection with um, primary emphasis on the training mission on the military side, a strong push on diplomacy, and uh, a very great priority placed on political reconciliation. Uh, and you know, I'll let you draw for yourself who that lines up with better than others. Oh, well. Um, well, for me, it's, it's fairly clear as to who, which position it's closest to now. Uh, I'm not always sure that these positions will be held to after January of 2009, however. I could, I could even see a scenario where if McCain wins, he changes abru abruptly doing an about-face and pulling out the sort of Nixon-goes-to-China model. Um, more than I think Clinton might, because she might be forced into a position of, st of, st of staying the course, so to speak. But anyway, for me, uh, according to the stated positions of the campaigns up till now, it's, it's clear that, I th that I'm the closest to the Obama position for the following reasons. Th it, they are clear about um, getting out in a certain timetable that is announced. They are also clear about the humanitarian side of this and th the role that displacement, migration, and humanitarian and the, hum the growing and coming humanitarian crisis plays in the security issues in the region and how that has to be diffused before any kind of long-term solution can happen. And, and those are the biggest differences between the Obama and the Clinton positions as they are stated. Um, otherwise, the, the positions are actually very close. Although they are close, uh, I personally feel the Obama campaign is more credible about trying to withdraw and also looking at more than just military affairs. And yeah. Any other questions from journalists? Okay, we can open up to the floor now. Uh, oh, sorry. If it's okay. Sure. Uh, if you would look forward to an increased role for the. Can you identify yourself? Yes, Eugene Bratterman, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. Uh, if you look forward to an increased role for the UN, uh, what none, none of you have addressed the position that either China or Russia might take and whether that would be helpful or hurtful and what contributions you might expect that they would make to an international force for peacekeeping if there is to be one. With respect to um, Russia or China's role in, in peacekeeping forces, I, I just don't think that's in the cards. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I'm not convinced there will be a peacekeeping force, and I'm quite certain that there won't be a Russia um, or a Chinese role. Um, vetoes in the Security Council are um, a, a perplexing thing. They make life very hard. And that doesn't mean that the UN can't play a much more important role than it does now through the Secretary General's personal representative. And all members of the UN Security Council um, share interest in peace and stability in that part of the world. I realize that's a, a statement at a high level of generality. Um, but good diplomats can find ways to work with countries um, like Russia and China that at the end of the day do not want to see um, Iraq um, fragment and do not want to see an American presence uh, for the indefinite future. Hi, I'm Colin Call. I'm a professor at Georgetown. Thanks for your presentations. Um, there seems to be widespread agreement on the panel that the U.S. signaling that it intends to uh, withdraw on some trajectory uh, will be productive uh, to encourage political accommodation. I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about whether you think that, that, that those incentives are best 
first uh, institutionalized by kind of establishing a unilateral timetable from Washington about what that withdrawal timetable should look like, or whether that time horizon should be the byproduct of negotiation uh, between us and the Iraqis, perhaps with uh, regional or UN uh, negotiators involved in that. I say that because you know, one could make the claim that if the, the idea is to push them towards accommodation, then giving them, having the Iraqi government have some say over the pace of our withdrawal or how many forces we might leave behind could actually incentivize them further. So could you give me a sense for whether you think the let's set a timetable from Washington and stick by it no matter what or negotiate a time horizon with the, with the Iraqis is better? And depending on which one you want, can you maybe flesh out the causal logic a little bit? Um. I appreciate the question. Uh, for me, this is an easy one. I agree with the latter. Um, surely not a unilateral timetable uh, established uh, out of Washington. Um, it's harmful because whatever it is, you won't be able to stick to it. Whatever it is, those who don't like you, you've given their strategic planners um, uh, a lot of help. But more importantly, signaling direction and working with the government of Iraq and the international community uh, has great advantages for the reasons you just outlined. Uh, it can give you uh, a lot of leverage to help along that process of uh, accommodation. Um, and, and so what's important, and, and this is what the study group emphasized, was setting the direction of policy. And, and the study group did not speak to any um, specific um, timeline or deadline. In general, I, I agree with that, and I, I, I've seen situations in the last decade or so where, where you, you kind of withdraw without negotiating with all the parties involved and things can get very ugly, whereas if you withdraw with uh, negotiations, very careful, minute, street-by-street -street type negotiations, it can go far better. But with a caveat, and that is that if the situation is somehow static enough to allow for such negotiations, then it can be negotiated, but I think there needs to be the following. There needs to be a very strong and credible statement that this is a timetable. It's not just um, an idea or an, a nice idea. Related to that, I would say keep expectations low to the extent that's possible. And connected to keeping expectations low, surprise people. Um, I think Paul Bremer did one thing very intelligently, and that was the way he left. He left like two days early, and everybody's like, where'd he go? <laughs> that's keeping expectations low and taking off early. Now, once the cat's out of the bag, it's kind of hard for people to be surprised anymore, but that's an example of the right way to leave, um, at least in a situation that's imploding around you. Thanks. Other questions? Hey, my name is uh, Yuri Ferruccio from the Migration Policy Institute. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for putting on this wonderful panel, but um, my question is very briefly to Nabil. Um, thank you for uh, talking about the internal politics in Iraq, and also um, I believe I saw you at one of our events the other day. I didn't have the chance to ask you, um, when one hears about the Iraqi refugee crisis, they hear mostly about the plight of uh, refugees in Syria and Jordan and neighboring countries. And you hear less about IDPs, and you hear even less about the political dynamics that are preventing the Iraqi government from doing more than it is to help them. So I was wondering if you could briefly sort of help me, uh, help me out with that a bit. I don't know very much about it. Well, there, there is a call for the Iraqi government to do far more for displaced populations as a whole. And I, if I understand the numbers correctly, it's $25 million that has been allocated for the Ministry of Displacement and Migration, which is a pretty small number considering what I think is a $46 billion surplus. And it's become highly politicized, whereby the Iraqi government has said, we want everyone to come home and we, we want them to come home now. It's safe and stable. Come on home. And everybody's like, are you nuts? Um, so even that point's become politicized because they want everybody to come home. They say it's safe and stable, yet pe when people return, there are sometimes conflicts that are getting people killed. They, they return not to their own home but to secondary displacement, and there's not much bureaucratic support in evidence yet of Iraqi governmental assistance to help in either resettlement in a different place or uh, return to point of origin. So yes, there is a, a big issue for the Iraqi government, although I don't feel too credible as an American to tell them much of anything at, at the same time, somehow. Vis-a-vis um, -vis the U.S. government, there's also a whole debate on that about how the U.S. government has up until now 
met its normal plus a little bit um, standards for international appeals. In other words, they might normally do 25 to 30 percent, so now they're doing 30 to 35 percent. When a lot of people think the U.S. government should basically uh, fund these appeals like that, you know, like we'll, we'll pony up 80 percent of the entire international appeal for refugee and or internal displacement assistance because it's our responsibility, ethically, morally, perhaps in some senses legally, although much less legally. Um, so there's even another debate there about how the U.S. should step up to the plate and finance uh, a lot more humanitarian relief than it has up till now. Although, I must say, when I interviewed humanitarian relief officials, they did not necessarily support that. They actually said, no, the U.S. has been pretty generous, and you can't just throw money at this problem. If we had $3 billion to play with instead of $300 million, we're not quite sure what we'd do with it. And so it's not just a question of money. For the Iraqi government either, at some level, it's more about signals combined with money, combined with making it possible for people to either improve their situation where they are or go back. Nabil, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you mentioned the provincial elections, and in the context of IDPs, how do you actually do elections if 2.7 million people, uh, if those figures are accurate, are displaced? Uh, how do you practically do this? And then also, how might this impact uh, the debate that people have if, if these elections move forward later this year? Yeah, that's, that's extremely problematic because um, I suppose you could simply do absentee ballots, but you know, bureaucratically that gets to be very difficult. And it's also been um, the various, well, 11 out of the 18 provinces have not allowed people to resettle uh, in their provinces recently. So that there's even internal barriers to resettlement, sort of bureaucratic internal barriers. So people are getting stuck. It's, I, I referred to it once as the nowhere to run, nowhere to hide uh, model of displacement within, Iraq, within the Iraqi population. <coughs> So what does that mean bureaucratically for an, for an election? Well, I suppose you just do it according to PDS cards, the public distribution system, which is how they've done it up till now. But for that to happen, the provincial officials have to accept the PDS cards from outside their provinces, which has knock-on effects into their status within those provinces. So it gets even more complicated. So you, and and if, if, if any election officials were to disallow out-of-place PDS cards, in other words, voters who aren't where they're from, that gets politically terribly charged. Or if they allow it for some provinces and not other provinces, um, and it would throw the elections completely out of whack. It would take away from their legitimacy, and, and, and it would lead to more violence, I would argue. Um, so that that's a very charged uh, question. And they have not really sorted it out yet, to my knowledge. In the back. Security Network. Chris, I'm gonna, the question is directed to you, but I'd be interested in Nabil's comment also. And that is, you make the point that the Iraq Study Group says that the mission to which one transitions is training. We've had training now for almost five years. Could you be a little more specific in terms of what that training would now entail and how it would be different? And Nabil, I'd like you to comment on Chris's answer in terms of the internal political situation in Iraq and the challenges that that presents to the training scenario. The question um, on training, Randy, it's, it's a great question. Training every year is getting better. Um, that's what we hear. Uh, in 2006, it was much better than the previous year. In 2007, we finally got it right. And gosh, we're making such success now. Uh, clearly, training has great shortcomings. The central problem with training, I think, really has been the question of loyalty. At the end of the day, you can have technical and professional skills, but are you going to fight? And that all comes down to questions of loyalty. And we saw how those played out in Basra and play out in Sadr City some. And that really gets you back to the question of political reconciliation, that there's um, a nation to which people sign up and uh, are willing to um, not only take a salary from them, but to put their lives on the line in extremis. And, um, we don't see those kinds of loyalties to uh, 
a national government. I'm less concerned about the air support and the logistics and the medevac. Um, that I think the United States will be doing that for quite some time to come. But the heart of the training mission at the end of the day um, comes back to uh, political reconciliation is the heart of uh, making that work. Thank you. Thanks. This gentleman right over here. I'm Al Richmond, the former State Department Office of Research. I wondered if you could be more specific about uh, negotiations with Iran. Given if you accept the premise that a central bone of contention between the U.S. and Iran is future influence over Iraq, how much room do we have to negotiate specific deals? Thank you. You know, um, some commentators refer to Iran as a paran paranoid power, and, and I w sort of remember that bumper sticker. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean you're not trying to kill me, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the U.S. government. I think that's how Iran basically sees the U.S. US uh, approach to the region right now. Um, as I see it, without engaging Iran, all the other multilateral things are not likely to succeed, um, because a lot of those knock-on relationships go around Iran somehow, and Iran has the ability to spoil them. So you could try to isolate Iran, but I don't see how it would work in the long term or even the medium term. And then just a point on training, since, since you'd, you'd wanted me to answer that as well. Um, I think we have an image in the U.S. of training as sort of training in a high-tech sense, like we'll train you how to do CSI DNA analysis for investigations and all kinds of things like that. Um, when in fact it's still a bunch of guys at street corners with AK-47s half the time and within that rubric of fairly simple duties most of the time I would argue that the Iraqi military tradition was there before 2003 they did fight a nasty eight-year war uh, and that their officer corps remembered that nasty eight-year war against Iran and they had the ability to to do military things um, and even in the reconstituted Iraqi military, that institutional memory is somehow there for the officers that have come back. So to me, training is in a way a smokescreen. It's really about unit integration and how you're going to get the loyalty, which means I'm completely in agreement with what Chris said on that point. I might phrase it a little differently, but I'm completely in agreement. Okay, I think actually we're, we're ready to wrap up at this point, so I want to thank everyone for coming and joining us and very much thank Nabil and, and Chris um, for their presentations and for the discussion. Thank you very much.